All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor, author, and horror legend Adrian Barbeau about Broadway, working for the mob, the crate, Catwoman, the fog, John Carpenter, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> All right, Adrian, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? A book reader. Walter Farley, The Black Stallion, The Black Stallion Sulky Colt, The Black Stallion Revolts, mm-hmm. Return of the Black Stallion. <laughs> and then when I was on the playground, maybe I did build a fort because I played the Black Stallion and I had a bunch of <laughs> friends who were the other horses. And I just remember running around the playground. <laughs> and then I progressed. I mean, I, I know Nancy Drew was in there. Mm. I wasn't a Hardy Boys reader. I was a, a, an avid reader because my, well, two reasons, I guess. But before my parents divorced, my dad was transferred a lot. He worked for Mobile Oil. We were constantly moving and we always moved at the beginning of the summer when I had no way of making friends because I wasn't in school. So I was just at the library all the time, bringing home 13 or 14 books every week, you know. And that's how I got through those summers until school started and I met people. Was this all over the country? Were you guys in a specific state? No, only in California. California. Gotcha, gotcha. I I was born in Sacramento. We moved to um, Fresno and then Stockton and then back to Fresno and then San Mateo. Oh, we went back to Sacramento at one point, San Mateo, and finally ended up in San Jose. Also, once my parents did divorce... (laughs) And even before that, my grandparents had a farm outside of Fresno in Mm. Selma, the raisin capital of the world. They had 20 acres. And I ended up spending all of my summers on the farm. Then I was reading nonstop there, too, (laughs) because there wasn't much else to do. Did they have horses as well? (laughs) No, no, no. They had chickens (laughs) and maybe one lamb, if I remember correctly. But it was mostly raisins. It was grapes turning into raisins. So you mentioned, uh, you know, you moved around a lot because of your father, but was anyone else in your family, maybe your mother or another relative, were they involved in the arts at all? Do you think that's where your roots came from? No one else. I had an uncle on my father's side who I didn't know very well, but at one point he was, he professed to have gotten Dolores Hart, her role in her first role, I guess, in an Elvis movie. I I, I don't know. It was a little vague. But no, there was nobody. I think my mother might have been a 
I, I don't want to say a frustrated performer, but she loved she loved musical theater. She wasn't a singer or anything like that, but she did love musical theater. So, Adrian, when you were growing up, uh, what sort of records were spinning around the house? When I was younger, on my grandparents' farm, we were listening. I was listening to Eartha Kitt singing Uskadar. You know, my grandparents are, were Armenian, but uh, I grew up listening to Uskadar by Eartha Kitt. It, somewhere around 1957, I got my first record player and my first album, my first couple of albums, both of which I have, were Harry Belafonte, Island in the Sun, I think mm. it was called, and Tommy Sands, Sing Boy Sing. I still have those albums. I've oh, had wow. Them, I've had them converted to... Uh, to CDs, which of course now, I mean, <laughs> you can't even play CDs anymore. And I think I know all of those songs by heart and could probably sing almost all of them. You know? <laughs> Would you consider yourself a collector? You know, I was. Oh, and then after, and then once 45s came along, I mean, I was a big 60s, early 60s rock and roll. Uh, Mickey and Sylvia, Over the Mountain, The Drifters, The Platters, you name it, all of, you know. A collector, I still have two, maybe 10 foot shelves of albums. I've gotten rid of all of the albums that I knew I would never play again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I still have a couple of those old boxes, the size of a shoebox, but it had a handle on top. Yeah. And your 45. I still have those filled with 45s. I still have, you know, massive amount of CDs, which God knows. <laughs> I, I, you know, I still bring the, sometimes I even bring the records out and play them. I still have a CD player set up so that I can play it throughout the house. Did you ever play an instrument? Were you ever musical at all? I can read music because, you know, I'm a singer. Mm -hmm. I can pick out a tune on the piano and I did take guitar lessons for a very short while, but you know, I hated to cut my nails and, <laughs> and it hurt. I'm so sorry that somebody didn't force me to at least take piano lessons. <laughs> so uh, Adrian, when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what pops into your mind? I never really went to movies or, t and, or what, we never had a TV until I was about seven years old. The first movies I really remember were when I was in college, I think. And, and the first one that really had an effect on me was a film called Sundays and Sibel. Somehow I found a copy of it and I had it converted. Sundays and Sibel with not Rita Tushingham. I can't remember the actress's name. It had a, a really powerful effect on me. And then I went through but now we're talking college. High school, I was already doing theater. So I was a cheerleader or a song girl or whatever they, they call those things. So after school, there was song girl practice and then there was rehearsals at night for musical comedy, you know. So, and then I started doing theater at night. So I never really went to the movies much. But my first year of college, I went through a big European movie phase, I think. Taste of Honey. The L-shaped room, Rita Tushingham, I remember. Um, those were all things that stood out in my mind. And then, and I am not a person. I'm fascinated every time I do a convention, you know, an autograph signing convention. 
because people come up and say, oh, I just watched The Fog again last week, or oh, I watch Creep Show every, you know, once a month, or oh, I watch, I can count on four fingers, I think, the movies that I have watched more than once. And I can probably count on those same four fingers, the movies that I remember. Um, <laughs> I've watched All the President's Men three times, I think. I finally watched Against All Odds, again, had a, a really powerful effect on me when it came out. I assume because I was something I was going through in my life. Mm. And I've been terrified to watch it again. But I do have a copy of it downstairs. <laughs> Just in I, case. You know, maybe, maybe now I can go back and watch it. I made the mistake of going back to watch a film called Cuba with Sean Connery and um, Brooke Adams, because I remember thinking, oh, you know, Sean Connery at the time, it's, you know, I thought, oh, Sean Connery. <laughs> and wouldn't it have been great to play that part that she played to have a romance with him? And I watched it and I'm so disappointed. It was like, oh, <laughs> this is so dated. <laughs> so it's not as good as I remember. And in terms of TV, well, my grandpa used to come in from, you know, working in the fields. It was Fresno, so it was 108 in the summer and 103, and he'd be out working in the fields at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and he would come in around noon and watch television while he was having his lunch, and I used to watch The Lone Ranger with him, and the one with Jock Mahoney, I don't remember the name of it, but Jock Mahoney was starring, and I always remembered that because he was Sally Field's stepfather or something, I think. And my grandmother and I used to watch It Could Be You, a show that brought somebody up from the audience and reunited them with somebody who was backstage from their past and usually from the old country. Well, I'm sitting there with my two grandparents, both of whom came over from Fresno. And I mean, we're crying like no <laughs> business. I was, you know, maybe seven or eight or nine, somewhere in there. And I think we watched Queen for a Day. I just didn't grow up on television. I never really watched I Love Lucy or uh, I never watched Batman. I had never seen Batman before I did uh, before I did the role, you know, for the animated version in the 90s. I wasn't a child of TV. So you fell in love with the business more through th the stage, is that fair to say? Yes, I did. If I fell in love with the business, I fell in love with... Acting. Acting. Yes, yes. right, that's more accurate. Yes. <laughs> my, my mother did not want me... I thought Los Angeles was a flesh market. Mm. You know, whatever yeah. that was, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, now we're talking, you know, high school... But yeah, I started, somebody told my mother that I could sing. And so when I was in fifth grade, she started driving me from San Jose to Burlingame, California. It was about, it was about an hour drive, I guess, maybe a little more, to take singing lessons at the Burlingame Conservatory of Music, where I learned to enunciate and <laughs> I learned to breathe and I studied arias <laughs> and then when I was about 15, I was working in a beauty salon, sweeping hair and, and taking, making appointments and everything. And one of my boss's clients, one of the ladies who used to come in to get her hair done, was on the board of directors for the San Jose Light Opera. Even at that time was a very successful 
I don't want to say multi-million dollar organization, but it was a very successful, basically a community theater. I just said to making conversation with this woman who was on the board of directors, oh, what are you doing now? You know, my mother may have taken me to see some of their shows. I don't know. But she said, oh, well, we're doing The Kick and I and uh, we're having auditions. And my boss said, well, you know, Adrienne sings. So I went in and auditioned for the role of Tup Tim and they hired me. And so that was my first my first experience on stage in a musical, except for high school. I think I had done, oh, what was that? It was a 1920s musical. I can't remember what it was called. And maybe I had done something at a junior theater, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. But I started working with the San Jose Civic Light Opera. When I was a senior in high school, the Civic Light Opera had a touring company that they had put together. It was a musical comedy review. And we applied to the State Department and they hired us. And a week after I graduated high school, I went to what in those days was known as the Orient. I'd never been on a plane before and we flew from Sacramento to, uh, what was, I can't remember the Air, Air Force Base in Sacramento, to Yokohama. And we started a three-month tour in Japan and South Korea. We were right on the DMZ. We were in an atomic testing center called Johnston Island. We went to Okinawa. We went, ended up at, I think it was called Fort Rutgers on Waikiki Beach, entertaining the armed forces. Got paid $7 a day singing and dancing for, <laughs> for most of these guys who hadn't seen a woman in <laughs> I mean, it was a, it was an incredible experience. Was that your first time out of the country? That was my first time on a plane, even. Wow. Yes, yes. We were we were on the northern island of Hokkaido, you know, and and we were like twenty two miles across the water from Russia. I think the most fascinating one was the uh, was the atomic testing center, Johnston Island. It was an atoll that was about a mile and a half wide and two feet uh, two miles long. And we landed. They didn't have, allow for women to stay on the island. We landed. We changed our clothes in the uh, in the mess or the the liquor cabinet, if I remember correctly. <laughs> we did performance on an outdoor stage with planes going <laughs> on the runway next to us. Those guys, they they'd been there for months and months and months. We were the first women that they'd seen, and it was it was a remarkable experience. And then we got on a plane and flew wherever we flew. We were we were right on the DMZ, heading back to our billets. The North Koreans were waiting under the bridge that we crossed over, and they shot and killed three GIs who had been at our performance, uh, who were on their way back to the base themselves. And I was 18 years old. I didn't even know, I barely knew about the Holocaust. Lower middle class or middle class upbringing, didn't know anything. and. People were fighting. They were using guns. They were shooting at each other. It was it was a, a life changing experience. Yeah. So grateful for because it gave me such a um, I think it gave me such an understanding of the world outside my own. You know. Before we get too far away from your childhood, I like to ask everyone this question, just because you never know. Um, what scared you as a kid? I don't remember. I had a Siamese cat scratch me once <laughs> and, and drew blood. And I think after that, I, I didn't like cats for a while. <laughs> but I don't 
remember, I, I don't remember being scared, uh, you know? I mean, I have an incredible uh, scare response. I mean, I can be sitting in my office and one of my boys will walk into the, into the just walk into the doorway and I'll jump, you know? But <laughs> I was going to say there aren't too many things that frighten me, but that's, of course, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what frightens me is, is losing somebody, yeah. you know? The yeah. accident uh, what scares me is the state of the state of our our country right now right those things scare me but i don't remember as a child i can't i remember um being again at the ranch i was in one bedroom that had a connecting closet to the the other bedroom and i looked down and there was a snake coming <laughs> coming into the bedroom my cousin went crazy I don't know if my sister was there or not. My cousin went crazy. My grandpa picked it up and took it outside and sliced it up with a <laughs> with, with a, a, a what are they a shovel. And I remember those pieces kept on going, you know. And I remember him cutting off the neck of a chicken, and the chicken kept on going. And but those didn't scare me. <laughs> so when you finally, you know, you start working on the stage, Adrian, did you ever have to deal with stage fright? Was that something you ever had to overcome? It wasn't until I got to New York and I started taking voice lessons with a t classical teacher who told me that my voice had been damaged and that there was a problem, you know, between my E and my F or something. And I listened to that for about a year and a half and I was already doing Fiddler on the Roof. I was the second daughter. I was singing the Far From the Home I Love. On Broadway, I had been doing it for about a year, and it was time to now audition for other things because it was time to leave the show. I mean, I, you know, you, you want to have your career grow, and um, I had so little belief in my ability as a singer that when I started to audition, uh, I couldn't control my lips. I couldn't control my knees. Mm. I was just, I, I was just shaking. It's not. That's not to say that was stage fright. That was. Uh, it was a little different. I mean, stage fright. If, if if you say stage fright to me, I think, oh my God, I'm. You know, I got to get out there and perform. And that I didn't experience too much. I remember there was one night when we were told that Kate Hepburn was in the audience. Mm. And I was I was nervous. I was nervous. Yeah. And I remember the man who played uh, Tevya, Harry Gauze, he said to me, what are you nervous about? She can't give you a job. <laughs> That's an interesting approach. Auditioning, I was, I, I, you know, it was it was really something I had to overcome. I didn't believe I, I could sing. I was working as a singer, but I really had to, you know, finally talk my way, talk talk myself through it and to say, why do you think they hired you? Do you think they felt sorry for you? I mean, you must be doing something right, right. you know? I remember Bette Midler was playing title and I was doing Huddle and uh, someone came backstage to see Bette and before he went, I was waiting at the stage door for something where I was leaving and he said, oh my God, your song was beautiful. Your song was beautiful. And he left and I thought, well, why would he say that? I mean, why would he say that? Could he mean it? You know? <laughs> I mean, I really, it's not stage fright. I guess it's insecurity. Yeah, it's, yeah. What it is. Yeah. So how do we get from, you know, you're, you're entertaining the GIs and the, the military or uh, DMZ 
how do how do you get to Broadway? <laughs> well, I, I came back from I came back for the tour and I had a scholarship to San Francisco State, but I hadn't taken the entrance exams. And so, you know, I was too late to get in. And I had a one of my directors at San Jose Civic Light Opera was the head of the theater department at a, a smaller college in Palo Alto called Foothill College. So he got me in. It was like a month after classes had started. And I, I just, you know, started taking classes and I was working. And I did another show for the San Jose Light Opera with an actress who had been in New York. She had done an off-Broadway show there. And she said to me, you know, I, I was I figured I'll just I'll get my credential and I'll teach acting, maybe. I'll teach something. I mean, I never crossed my mind you can earn a living as an actor. I didn't <laughs> Nobody, I didn't, I didn't know anybody that did that. She said, you ought to go to New York, you know, if nothing else, you ought to go to New York to study. That's where all the great teachers are. Unfortunately, it was the singing teacher that she sent me to that who did so much damage to my psyche. But I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll do that. I'll go and I'll see if I can be an actor. And if I can't, you know, by the time I'm 25, well, I'll go back to college and I'll get my degree and I'll come back and I'll teach acting. So I just, I went to New York. I didn't know a soul. I had saved $1,000, put all my stuff in a box and told my mom to send it to me when I had an address. And I went to New York. I started auditioning. My eventual job was working for the mob. At I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, that was my next question. <laughs> working for Maddie the Horse, Genovese, I think. was oh, No, Maddie Ionelli. Dianello. I can't remember his last name. I, all I knew was it was Maddie the Horse. You know, I right. found out years later when I was writing my memoir that he was, you know, one of the five families or something. I don't know. I'd have to go back and read the memoir now. You know, you had to work at night because you had your you had to have your days free to make rounds, to go to the casting offices, to go to the auditions, to take classes. So this place treated their girls very, very well. I think they had gotten into trouble. You know, I think they had, <laughs> had some problems with the with the cops. And so they they took very good care of us. They made sure we got into a cab at four in the morning and got home and they didn't let the, the you know, the clients bother us. And uh, so I started working as a cocktail waitress there. And then I think they taught me how to, you know, mix drinks. So I was a barmaid. And then Maddie had this... Um, he had this stage in the in the restaurant upon which he had these motorized mannequins who were dressed up like musicians and they used to move you know the drummer would sort of make his hands go like a drum and the guy that was playing a piano looked like he was playing the piano and the guitar player and he used to play records on the jukebox and it looked like these guys were playing music People would come in thinking there was a live band, and when they realized there wasn't, they'd get pissed off. <laughs> so Maddie decided that the girls should get up and dance to the music. And I have been told, or I was told years later by the mistress of one of, of Maddie's brother, I think it was, who wrote a book, that we were probably the first discotheque dancers I mean, we were probably the first ones who got up and danced to a record. So that's how I was earning my living at night. And then I was auditioning during the day. And after about, about six or seven months, I got my first 
real job, you know, my first theatrical job, I went off and did summer stock for five months at a theater in Michigan that paid us $75 a week. And then we had to kick back 35 <laughs> to the producer. Um, and, but at the end of those five months, I was in the union. I oh. had my equity card. And so then I could go to, you know, open union calls. And so then I started doing theater in and around New York, <clears throat> summer stock and in New Jersey. At, uh, and then I got a call one day from the casting director for Fiddler, which had been running for a couple of years. And she asked me to come in and audition. And Fiddler was my first Broadway show. First night Broadway debut. What's going on internally with you? Or do you remember being nervous or thinking, you know, <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Or anything like that? I don't remember that. I do remember the audition. It was grueling. It was about a four-hour audition. But a few days before, and now I, I can't remember if this was a dream or if this was... I just got a very, very strong psychic sense from my grandmother, who was deceased, that this was going to be my job. Maybe it's because, you know, it was, you know, the Jews, the pogrom, and I, you know, my my heritage had suffered the first genocide of the century, uh, you know, at the mm -hmm. Turks or whatever. I don't know. But I just had this, I just thought this is my job. And... I was auditioning against a girl who was already in the show. She was the understudy, if I remember correctly. But I just remember it was just grueling. But after, I think they may have told me then, at the end of the four hours or six hours, whatever it was, that I had the job. I don't remember the opening night. <laughs> I don't remember opening night of Greece. I mean, by that time, my career has always taken second place in my memory. You can ask me who I was dating, what we had to din had for dinner the first night we went out, or things like that, and I might remember. But my career has always been second place. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So you're you're working on Broadway. How, what's the big break that lands you from the stage to the screen eventually? That was Greece. I mm. was nominated for a Tony, and um, Norman Lear's casting director came to see it. Norman called me in. They had already auditioned something like 200 girls in L.A. to replace the actress who had done the pilot. She was very good. She was a great actress, but. She either didn't want to relocate to L.A. or maybe they felt her approach to the role was her, her approach to the comedy was too much like B's. For whatever reason, they were replacing B's Maud's daughter. Mm -hmm. So Norman called me in for an, uh, just an interview in New York. The role had already been established as having a seven year old boy. Norman just didn't think I looked old enough to play the mother of a seven year old boy. So that was the end of it. I never heard anything more until about a month later. And my agent showed up at the theater on a Saturday in between shows. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, they want you in LA on Tuesday. It was the day after my birthday, I think, to, uh, to go on camera to audition. I am forever grateful to the producers of Greece and to my understudy because they we had performances, mm -hmm. but they, they said I could go. So I flew to LA. That's when I had, you want to talk about 
uh, nerves. I was so nervous. I mean, I don't know how I even got through the audition. And I don't think it was a very good audition. They called me, they called me four days later and said, you know, we need you to start in two weeks. So it was really, it was the role in Greece, which led to everything else. So you did a lot of work in TV, obviously, after that, but correct me if I'm wrong, but The Fog was your first feature, correct? The Fog was my first feature. Yes, I had done a lot of television movies and miniseries and yeah. mm-hmm. guest stars on, on other things and everything. And then I did a um, I did a television film. I got a call from my agent saying, well, there's this young director, you know, it's his first TV, TV show. It's his first studio film, I guess he said, but his first show TV movie. But you know, he's he's sort of hot. I think something's gonna happen. And he'd like to meet you. He has a role in this this TV movie that he wrote called Someone's Watching Me. I drove to Universal, I think it was, maybe it was Warner Brothers, I can't remember. And I, I went in to meet this young director who I could barely see through the smoke, <laughs> <laughs> the cigarette smoke in his room. <laughs> when I did see him, I thought, oh, he's very attractive. <laughs> uh, and uh, his name was John Carpenter. And uh, we talked about this role that he wanted me to do. And I never re- really real. I don't think I realized until later that this was probably the first lesbian role in a television film that John was offering me. It was beautifully written. And he hired me. Did you guys hit it and- off immediately? You know, we did hit it off immediately. I mean, I really liked him. I thought he was very attractive. When we were talking about the script and the role, he said something about, well, you know, if I'm going to tell my friends that I'm, I'm gay, or, you know, he said, I blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh, oh, well, <laughs> you know, he's gay. Forget about it. I don't care how attractive he is. He's gay. Forget about it. And um, once we got on the set and we started working together, I, I learned that he was not. <laughs> it wasn't until after we finished working, uh, you know, several months after that, that he called me up and, and we started spending time together. But that was my first time working with John. And as we became closer, I've got a role for you in this in this feature. Great, you know, and he gave it to me and I read it. This was what, 1978, 1979. And I was, it was the height of the women's movement. You know, it was the height of, we were trying to get the ERA passed, the Equal Rights Amendment passed. I was fighting, I mean, and and the movies that were coming out were like Coming Home and uh, The China Syndrome and they were, and I had never seen a horror film. I think I saw Donovan's brain maybe on TV. <laughs> I'd never seen Psycho. I'd never. I didn't go to horror films. I didn't like that kind of stuff. And he handed me this, and it was like, but it's a horror film. I mean, it's it's not socially significant, you know. And I was sort of disappointed, but it was a great role. And I mean, thank God that I did it, and thank God for John for offering, <laughs> for writing it for me. Really, you know, right? And that was the beginning, Stevie Wayne. So when it comes to the fog, you know, Adrian. Recently, I spoke with Tommy Lee Wallace, and uh, yes. yeah, he told me that you know the film that we see and know today as the fog is very different from what was initially shot. There was a lot of reshooting involved. That it was missing something when you guys watched it for the first time. Do you remember? I remember. 
Now, let me make sure this is, yes, I remember John taking me in the, I don't know if it was in the middle of the screening. I think it was. Taking me outside and saying, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but basically, will you still care about me if this, this is a total failure? He just, he thought it was a total failure. Just, it wasn't working. But he went to Avco Embassy. Now, you'd have to really get this information from John or Tommy or somebody. And I believe, my remembrance is that he offered to pay. He said, we've got to, we've got to shoot more footage. We've got to do this. We've got to do that, you know. Uh, and, and I think Avco did come through. I think they helped finance it. But he went back and um, Tommy could probably tell you better or probably did tell you better <laughs> what he added. I, I would not be the best person to, to tell you that because... <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, did you notice when you watched it back the first time with everybody, did you notice that something was missing yourself? Do you remember thinking, man, this isn't working quite like it is? I'm the person who went to a screen. When we were doing Swamp Thing, they had a, a pre-release screening of this movie with um, this guy named Harrison Ford. And, and what was her name? I can't even remember. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> You know, this sort of Saturday matinee movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I mean, I went to see it and I walked out and I thought, well, I don't I don't get it. <laughs> so I was not the person that, you know, should be judging these things anyway. I don't remember. I don't I have no I have no recollection. I'm sure I didn't. I, I'm sure I didn't think it was bad. I mean, I don't remember thinking there was anything wrong with it because I remember being totally taken aback by him saying it's not working it's there's you know I, I if i get out of the business will you still care about me <laughs> now i trust my judgment now what i do when i'm not on film when i'm not acting is i do video captioning for the blind meaning i narrate television films i uh, television series and films for the blind. Wow, that's cool. What I'm doing is I'm describing what's going on on screen in between the dialogue. So if you're watching your TV and you put your SAP channel on and you're watching evil, let's say, uh, you will hear my voice describing what the priest is doing or the, you know, what the people are doing in between talking. And a lot of the product that they give me to do is coming out of Blumhouse or I mean they give me all the horror films to do <laughs> and all the scary stuff. Yeah, like, you got a familiar voice for that. And all of those things. <laughs> so now I can tell you I believe I am a good critic. You know? <laughs> so uh Adrian, nineteen eighty two creep show comes along. I just wanted to ask right. you, you know, what some of your memories are from that set and working with Hal Holbrook who recently passed. Last yeah. few years, oh, he was a, he was a he was a dear. He was a delight, and Fritz Weaver, both of them. I just, I had such a good time doing that film, and I mean, it's it's an oft-told story now. But I wasn't going to do the film. I got that script, and I said to John, "I can't do this. I mean, this is this is vile. This is this. <laughs> ooh, this is ooh. I mean, this is just ooh. I can't do this. I can't do this. You know." The, First of all, John said to me, are you kidding? You're going to turn down an opportunity to work with George Romero? I'd never seen Night of the Living Dead. I didn't know any of that stuff, you know. I called Tom Atkins, who's a very close friend. 
And Tommy had already committed to doing, he plays the father in the interstitials, you know, right. with Jack Hill. And I said, Tommy, you're doing this movie? I mean, ooh, it's just like, ooh, it's that. He said, oh, 80, you don't get it at all. It's going to be very stylized. It's like a co comic book. It's very funny. You've got to do it. Okay. Thank <laughs> so, you, Tom Atkins. <laughs> yeah, Tom Atkins. And so I showed up and I, I said to George, I, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here, but, you know, if this isn't working, if what I'm going to do, it doesn't work, you better send me home because I didn't get it at all. <laughs> well, in the first place, I don't drink. I've never been drunk. So that was already going to be a problem, you know? I mean, God bless George, you know? And it was a whole different way of working. I had been working with John and other directors and, you know, all of that time. And, you know, where it's like, do less, do less. You know, this is a big screen, do less. And George comes along and says, no, no, you can get, you can make it bigger, you can make it bigger. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I'm doing the scenery here. But I finally thought, well, you know what? I mean, he's the director and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to trust him. Billy is really George's creation. Right. <laughs> Billy, Wilma, that the movie, that segment doesn't work without you. So the fact that you had no experience in horror and you'd never drank before, it's just it's crazy that you really knocked that one out of the park. You know, I approached it the way I approach everything else. I had to understand her. You don't do something like that and i think sometimes you know beginning actors let's say might read that and say well she's just a bitch and she's i'm gonna act like a bitch and i'm gonna do this and that you can't do that you have to understand why she is the way she is i mean billy was extremely disappointed in the way her life turned out you know mm -hmm. she married this man who was supposed to be a a, a shining beacon of academia and he let her down you know and maybe that's why she started drinking i don't know maybe who knows but you can't play the end result have to just play what's what's driving the what the character is experiencing i think that's why billy works so uh, adrian when it comes to batman the animated series do you remember that being a typical audition yeah, it, for me, it was a typical audition because in those days, we'd just get a call from the agency, drive over the hill to the agent's office where they had a, a you know, a recording studio, a little booth. And uh, I walked in and it was uh, 30 minutes of, uh, not 30 minutes, 30 seconds of maybe seven lines, eight lines. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. I don't remember being very many lines. And you just recorded it. And then went home and about a month later, I got the call that, that they thought my voice was the right one for Catwoman. Now, were you given much direction for the voice of Catwoman or did you just, they kind of no. go with what you went with? No, not, not for the audition, certainly, no. The, the direction came when, when we were recording and we had, you know, the most fantastic booth director or director uh, that you could possibly ask for, Andrea Romano. And Andrea would say things like, I have a scene where I'm running across the top of a building and I jump and I land. And I run across the top of the building and I jump and I pop. And she'd say, uh, Adrienne, I'm looking at the uh, storyboards. The building is 30 feet high. It's not 10 feet high. 
okay, (laughs) that changes, that changes the sound of the oomph, you know. So she, she guided us all through, you know, whatever the visual was, if she heard something that she didn't think matched up to the visual. That show specifically, it's not like your typical cartoon, you know, it was much more hard-boiled, almost theatrical, noir-type story. Did you pick up on that, that it was much different than your typical cartoon? And once again, (laughs) I say, (laughs) I mean, I guess I watched Tom and Jerry when I was little. I I sort of remember Tom and Jerry, but I I didn't have anything to really... No references. I didn't have references Except that when I saw it, I realized that the artwork, you know, the whatever you call it, the uh, art deco approach. I mean, it was beautifully, I'm not using the right words even now, beautifully drawn, whether animated, or, mm-hmm. you know, not, not just the, the characters, the background. I mean, they, they just did an incredible job. It was so unique, I think. I've never thought of this before, but as we're talking, it's not unlike the locations of the fog, which for me were always, have always been as much as important a character in the film as all of the actors. True. Um, The graphic artists, the graphic artistry of Batman is just as important and as vital and uh, as contributes just as much to the success of the entire project as the actor's voices right it does and you know i wanted to ask you as well regarding batman you know last year we lost kevin conroy i wanted to ask if you had any memories you could share of working with him or meeting him well he was just he was lovely to work with i i I probably got to know kevin more just in the last couple of years when we were doing the uh, comic conventions you know Mm -hmm. because when we were doing the actual recording we'd just show up everybody be in the room do our lines and, you know, say hi to everybody, give everybody a hug and then finish and then and then leave. So I didn't really, what a lovely man he was. Mm. I just, and what a talent, what an incredible talent. But I don't have it, I don't remember anything specific. You also, one of your roles that I'm familiar with is one of my generation's favorite Scooby-Doo movies, Scooby-Doo on Zombie <laughs> Island. <laughs> so what what was that experience like for you? Okay, that one, I do have, <laughs> I do remember a little bit about that one. That one was not an audition. I think they just called, I, I just, you know, they, they offered me the role. They never said to me, this woman is uh, Creole or Cajun or, or, you know, she's got a French accent or anything <laughs> until I showed up. And I don't remember with anybody else being in the room. I, I don't remember. I just remember thinking, oh, my God, uh, I've got to give him a French accent. I didn't know it. I didn't have time to listen or prepare or anything. And all I could do was, at the time, Catherine Deneuve had a commercial. Sometimes it's not easy to be Catherine Deneuve. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I speak French, but that's different than speaking English with a yeah. French accent. As far as I'm concerned, that's one of the worst French accents <laughs> you could hear. But um, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> and again, I didn't know anything about Scooby-Doo. I didn't realize how big it was yeah. and how big it is now. I've just started, you know, carrying uh, 
a, when I go to the conventions, I carry a poster from Scooby-Doo and oh my God, people just go crazy. You were in Scooby-Doo? What part did you play? I was Miss Simone, <laughs> the lady with the bad French accent. <laughs> That's so wild that you were involved in Scooby-Doo and Batman and kind of didn't know the huge cultural didn't impact they had. <laughs> didn't know a thing, you know. Truthfully, <laughs> though, it, it's only been, you know, since the advent of the conventions that they did have a social impact. Right. I mean, it, or that we found out they had a social impact. You know, I mean... Certainly when we were doing The Fog or Escape from New York or Creepshow or Swamp Thing or any of those, nobody was thinking, oh my God, 40 years from now, these films are going to have a whole new audience and the old audience and they're going to be, you know, they just released the Stevie Wayne action figure and they just did this <laughs> and they did No, we just, we hope, and, hope the op movie opened well and people <laughs> see it, you know? <laughs> Well, Adrian, this is something I like to ask everyone to wind down. Cause sometimes some people give me a 30-minute answer. Sometimes they give me a five-second answer. So uh, have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yes. Yes, I have. I think I've probably had more than one, but only one comes to mind right now. My mother was in the hospital. She only had a couple of days to live. I was staying with her in the hospital. I was sleeping on a cot this one night. I think they were going to release her the next day to go home and, 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 you know, so she could be at home. The room was freezing because my mother, uh, she, she, they had the air conditioning on as high as they could. And she had a fan blowing on her because she was very, very hot. And I don't know if I had been prepared to spend the night or not, but I didn't have, I was, I had on jeans, street clothes. Maybe I had a robe on and they had brought they had brought me a blanket, but I was freezing. I was just freezing. And in the middle of the night, my mother started saying, Ma, Ma. And I thought I and I just sort of woke up, but I didn't open my eyes. And, and I, I woke up and I thought, oh, is she dreaming? I know she's is she in pain? Should I wake her up? because she's in pain or should I let her sleep and maybe the pain, I, I can't remember what my thought process was, but I, I was just lying there with my eyes closed. And then I opened my eyes and my grandmother was standing at the end of the bed, my deceased grandmother was standing at the end of the bed. And all of a sudden the room got warm and it felt like a fleece blanket had been placed on me had just come down on top of me and I was completely warm and relaxed. And I thought, oh, okay, it's gonna be okay. Grandma is here and she's gonna be waiting for her or taking her, waiting for her. And th there's no question in my mind. And then after my mom passed, I went to see a psychic. The first thing he said to me was, uh, did your mom just pass? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah, she's here. She's here with an elderly lady who has funny shoes. They're sitting on the porch of a, uh, I don't know, it looks, it looks like a porch on a, of a farm or something. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, and, and your mom says to tell you her hair looks good. Well, my mom had gone home on Thursday and on Friday with her, what do you call it, her IV, on a stand, she had gone to the hairdressers. 
and had her hair done. And she passed, I think it was that Sunday or Monday. And so the first thing he said to me was, yeah, she says to tell you her hair looks good. And then he said, she has a lot of shoes. Your mom has a lot of shoes. And my sister and I had just gone through her apartment prior to him saying this. This was a couple of, this was maybe a month after my mom had passed. And discovered that my mother had almost I don't know, a hundred pair of shoes in pristine condition in their shoe boxes in her closet. I never knew this about her. I had never opened her closet, I guess, you know. I do believe that um, my grandmother was psychic. Well, that experience I told you about Fiddler, I, I, that was, there was no question in my mind that my grandmother was telling me that that was my job. Mm -hmm. but she was psychic and we had my grandmother was in the hospital when one of my cousins was in an accident and passed. They didn't tell my grandmother. And when they went to see her the next day, she told them she knew that my cousin had passed. And then the other story she told was that at one point, my grandfather came to her in a dream and said, come on, it's time to go. And she said, no, it's not time yet. I'm, I, it's not time. I'm not leaving yet. And she didn't go. <laughs> she didn't go. <laughs> but I, I, I strongly believe that that was my grandmother who was there to make it okay for my mom. My mom the next morning, I said, were you, did you have a dream last night? Or she said, no, uh, you know, and, uh, but she was very, she was, she was okay. She was getting ready to go and she was okay. And I think that, I don't know, it, it certainly helped me. Do you consider yourself religious or uh, spiritual or anything? I'm not religious in terms of church religion. I, I have a metaphysical bent. I believe, you know, maybe there's, I think there's a universal energy. Mm -hmm. I have several times I have seen a really brilliant, and I say brilliant because I just think he has a gift, a medium who has said things to me i mean who who you know who has who talks has spirits who you know speak to him uh, spirits of people who've passed from mm -hmm. my life or whatever who has said things that there's no possible way that he could be saying them unless this person is saying this to him i'm not i'm not explaining this very well I, i'm following you <laughs> he's, a he's a medium yeah and yeah. people when you go to see him he says to you you know there's someone standing over your shoulder a young woman who blah 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 and who says this and i say okay i know who that is well that's a that's a great story well adrian just to put a bow on everything here, why don't you just tell folks what you got on the horizon? Is there anything you can share without getting in trouble? <laughs> Let's see, without getting in trouble. I, I, you know, I mean, we're supposed to settle this thing almost any day now. I am, uh, I have, I am doing a recurring character in two series, one of which just aired on Amazon Prime, but I can't talk about it. And the other one is uh, a series um, for a, a very major name in, uh, in science fiction and in film and in television, which of course now, I mean, we're not filming anything. 
I right now there is a a short film that I did called Oddities, which is making the festival circuit. Let's see. I was just supposed to do something in August, but uh, you know the strike sort of put paid to that. Just did. I don't know if I can even. Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't know if I can talk about. I just did a wonderful role. Uh, I mean, it's already aired in an episode of 911 that I was really really sort of. <laughs> It was just delightful, and I was really happy with it. And there are a couple of things on Netflix that I did, you know, in the last year or two, uh, three actually. Now that time's going by so fast that that I'm sort of proud of. But because they're Netflix, right? <laughs> But uh, you know, we'll see what's what's coming up next. Awesome. Well, Adrian, I wanted to thank you again for giving me some of your time. I'm a huge fan. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you know there is one more thing I could talk about. What's that? Which is, which is, I, I I assume most of your listeners don't know that I have written three vampire novels. Uh, it's wow. a series and a memoir. Which the memoir I really am happy with, and um, actually the the second of the vampire series, we are as soon as you know the industry opens up again, we are taking to the. Uh, Networks in the hope that we've got a we've got a pilot script and and in the hopes that maybe we can get that going, and just last year I co-wrote co-edited a book called Greece Tell Me More Tell Me More, which is came out for the 50th anniversary of Greece, which is a collection of stories from all of the actors who appeared in the original Broadway production and the national company and the the bus and truck tours everyone from Travolta to um, Patrick Swayze to uh, Richard Gere to Mary Lou Henner uh, Treat Williams Jeff Conaway Barry Bostwick and all the other uh, Alan Paul from Manhattan Transfer and all the other actors who uh, appeared have written some really wonderful, funny, touching, moving stories about their auditions, their life on the road, their uh, you know their experiences on stage when the when Grease Lightning went into the orchestra pit, all kinds of things. And it's a fun book for for anybody who loves musical theater and and uh, is interested in acting and uh, and loves Grease. My memoir is called "There Are Worse Things I Could Do," which is the song that I sang in Greece, and I do tell a lot of the stories about, you know, making the low-budget horror film in in Russia with the with the forty trained rats, who <laughs> 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 just who were just trained to eat anything that smelled like fish. So every time they had to swarm over me, they took fish heads and squeezed the juice all over my costume. So if you want to read about it. <laughs> No, the life of an actor. <laughs> glamorous. <laughs> glamorous life of an actor. Those are things that I can talk about. <laughs> oh, that's great, Adrian. Thank you again. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Adrian. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? 
then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.